Today, let's try to be reasonable. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. So let me begin today with a question uh, and, and a tiny bit of background to get to the question. There's this old Churchillian line, and I say that because I don't know whether Winston Churchill actually said it or not. There are a lot of things people attribute to him that don't seem to, to have been him. So anyway, uh, it's this statement, history is written by the victors. The history of that is probably a little obscure, that statement, its own, you know, <laughs> that which is funny. The, the statement, history is written by the victors, is written by who knows who. But it's attributed often to Winston Churchill. He may have said something that was similar to it or something like that. I don't know. But, but there is this similar statement, and we don't quote it, but we mean it when we say history is written by the victors. And I think it really comes from this, uh, and I have a reason for talking about it right now. So we, and we know where it comes from. We know who managed to create that idea about history being written by the victors with this phrase, the victor will always be the judge, the vanquished, the accused. We know exactly who said that. And we use that idea a lot. We rely on it. And, and, and it's, it's a reasonable assertion, at least from the outset. Our, you know, it's, it's reasonable to assert our opinions must be unduly biased by the information that we do receive. Well, that makes sense because we have tenacity of belief. You receive some information, you're going to hold that view. I mean, how could they not be shaped by the information we received, our opinions? And the information that we receive, it, it is obviously biased by its source, and the source has to be self-serving by its nature, the nature of everything. It's serving its own interests and dominant only because it was able to suppress the other voices. That's why we received this information instead of other information. And so it seems per perfectly reasonable to say, well, our very narrow, maybe parochial view of history or of things that transpired or of the judgment of moral certitude about what's happened in the history of the world and so on, uh, is actually just a, a biased recording of history because we're the ones who happen to shape it, something like that. This is what we do. So I want to ask this question. Who, who said that? From whom did that quote come? Do you know? I'll tell you in a little bit. <laughs> Not yet. Obviously, I know it's a podcast. You can just skip to the end and find out. But uh, you won't know where. Somewhere in here, we're going to bring that up. And I know you can Google it, too. And you can ask AI. But AI might lie to you. It imagines things sometimes. So who knows? But here's the more important question. Okay, it's Herman Gehring. But we'll come back to it in a minute. Here's the more important question. Is it a fair indictment of the confidence that we can have 
in reasonably objective claims about some of the most important things with which we have to deal, because that's usually when it comes up. Oh, well, you're just writing history because you happen to win the wars. You're, you're just making these statements because you happen to be able to exercise power in this circumstance. And, and usually when we're doing that, it's in situations that are vital, morally transformative, sometimes in our own lives, sometimes in our culture, sometimes for the world. And that's the case that I have in mind right now. So what I want to do is just talk about reason itself, that is the place where we can say, well, this is not just me winning the war and therefore dictating the rules of the you know success that we've had or the rules of the world going forward from the success we've had. This is me saying objectively, that was wrong, here's why it was wrong, and here's why you're going to be held accountable for what you did. I'm not saying me personally, I'm not in any position like that. But why we need uh, some grasp of rationality and objective content. So I want to talk about the domain of reason, rationality, uh, calm, cold, or cool, uh, ability to analyze and come to conclusions that are true for everyone, even if they don't accept it. It's still true, and so on. So there are two directions we need to go to make sense of this conversation and not just become shallow in it. Number one is we need to talk about the limitations on reason because there are severe limitations. The idea that we're just going to sit down and become perfectly rational beings capable of solving all the problems of the world without the petty childish interactions of all of those emotional and volitional creatures around us is just nonsense. That's just not true. No one lives there. So we need to acknowledge the limitation that reason has both because we're humans on us, but also because of its nature, you know, what it actually does. So I want to talk about its limitations, but then I also want to talk about, come back and talk about what this is really about, which is the importance of reason. And I know uh, you're thinking to yourself, no no way he's doing this in one episode because I've, I've heard him before and he doesn't get through things in one episode, but I think I can not only do I think I can, I have to. So I'm going to get this done in one episode because I, uh, I, I need the conclusion to be attached to uh, this question uh, of, of what's going, and in fact, what's going on in our world right now sort of demands that we gain a willingness to acknowledge the validity of reason as a tool that God has given us for analyzing what's going on in the world as a tool that we have for analyzing what's going on in the world. So first, acknowledging the limitations on reason. First, first in terms of human nature. And that's just to, to acknowledge that we're more than rational creatures. I've, I've talked to plenty of people who say, well, I'm, I'm all reasonable. Everything for me is governed by reason. And they're just, I, you know, I'm, I can't think of any words that would allow me to continue to be a peacemaker if I used them to describe that person. It, that's just nonsensical. Uh, it's the least rational thing that person would probably say that day. It's just silly. And in a traditional sense, in a and when I say traditional, I mean it's sort of a Christian, American, Christian, traditional way of describing, and it's more, it goes beyond American, but anyway, uh, the human soul, uh, we divide it, we describe the soul as the mind, will, and emotions. That's sort of a traditional statement of it. It's not super deep. But it's also not weak. It, it has a lot of reason for 
us uh, standing there and saying, yeah, that's a good way to describe the human soul. It's the mind, will, and emotions of a person. I think there's more to that. I think there's actually a metaphysical entity. I think we are a soul. But describing it having the attributes of mind, will, and emotion uh, seems accurate to me, and I I like appealing to that. And I and I th- also find it scripturally consistent, as you'll see uh, as we go down in a moment. But even outside of a that particular Christian kind of reading of it, uh, there's also a more ancient uh, variant of describing the human soul in a similar way. In fact, I think it matches up quite uh, nicely. Uh, but it's Plato's soul. When Plato describes the tripartite soul, uh, the three-part soul as being intellect, spirit, and appetite. Uh, that's head, chest, and belly for those who prefer C.S. Lewis. It's uh, the idea that you have uh, something that's governed by reason, your intellect, something that's governed by volition, uh, the cognitive aspect, the spirit. And he doesn't mean by spirit, you know, the thing that we would refer to as the Holy Spirit or the thing that we would refer to as the spirit of a human being, the part of us that relates to God or something like that. He doesn't mean that. He means the part of us that gives us the the energy and the oomph to get up and get involved in things, you know, volition, that kind of aspect of the human nature. So that's the spirit. And then appetite is that part of us that just wants stuff, you know, and, and is strongly governed by emotional desires. So it's an emotive sort of compulsion. Uh, and that makes sense, too, because even in scriptural terms, you know, pulling it back into the scriptures, the splunkna, you know, the uh, compassions, the emotions uh, that Jesus talks about or that Paul talks about, those are bowels, you know, they're down in your guts. So the heart has more to do with volition uh, in a biblical sense. And the guts have more to do with emotions in a biblical sense. I don't care about the nuances of that, and I think there are some, I've heard some people talk about it lately who have, I think, an even more nuanced and better understanding of what heart and guts are in the way the Bible talks about them. I know guts, but, you know, bowels, is that any better, really? Uh, so, anyway, here's the point. I'm just saying, there's more to the human soul than pure reason. We're just not that. We are reason along with will and emotion at a minimum. And the evidence that that's the case, if you're like if you're a Christian listening right now and you're like, ah, who cares about all this philosophical stuff? Okay. Even the genres in scripture speak to the different parts of our nature. And you know, as I was as I was just sort of composing this outline in my mind for this episode. It was, I, I had to acknowledge that in all the years that I taught uh, homiletics, taught how to, how to do preaching, how to do public speaking, you know, and give messages in the church context, all the years that I taught that, I really didn't focus on making sure that the messages we conveyed, not just the, I did, I did focus on genres and how to study them correctly and expose, you know, uh, uh, detail the contents of them, use the structure of them, shape, blah, blah, blah. I did all of that. But what I didn't do was on the other side make the point that the outflow of our study, that is the message itself, the way we communicate, the goal we have in mind at the end of the message should also be shaped by what that genre was speaking to. And the genres don't just speak to reason. So if a person's just a teacher and loves to teach the details of a text, and I love to do that, and I know some guys who love to do it more than way more than I do, and they're focused entirely on the intellectual grasp of what the passage says, for it never to go into 
the con- that is for their message never to become a message whose goal and content is principally emotional is for them not to understand what most of the Psalms are about or whose goal is principally hortatory. You know, let's get you to do something. Go out and participate in something. It's motivational. Uh, would be to miss what some of the genres in Scripture are about. And so, you know, when you're looking at Scripture, there are dianoetic texts. Uh, and I want so badly to just stop and read some of these to you in detail. But, you know, I've done them before, and so I'm not going to go back and do them in, in detail again. But, you know, when Paul uses a reductio ad absurdum argument in 1 Corinthians 15, it is it is a, a perfect appeal to rationality, to the way we have to organize concepts together and come to a conclusion. I mean, it's def- if you don't understand the rational content of the text, you simply don't understand the text. And we make all kinds of mistakes with 1 Corinthians 15 because of that. I'm thinking of the phrases, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, our preaching is vain, your faith is vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because... We testified about God that he is that about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise. If it's true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, you can hear Paul is just repeatedly coming to these if-then phrases to say one thing leads to another. And if you believe that, then you have to believe something absurd, something you've already said you don't believe. So you must believe that Christ actually rose from the dead and that we will have a resurrection from the dead as well. And so so that kind of argumentation, we call it dianoetic because it goes through the mind, meaning the rational part of our mind. And if you grasp the rational content of that text, then you grasp the text. It's a dianoetic text. You just need to know it in your mind. You just need to hear what the argument was. Same thing in Romans 8 when he's saying, and, and I think in this case, it's an inductive argument. I know we organize it differently than that. But in Romans 8, 29, when he says, for, for those whom he foreknow, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. He's obviously creating this pattern so that by the time we get to the end, we'll know what we're supposed to understand about the faithfulness of God but it's entirely dependent on us grasping the relationship between God's faithfulness when he was predestining us, predestinating us, predestining us, to when he, uh, you know, from when he foreknew us, that that faithfulness is conveyed forward with every step in what he does to bring us into his image, that is, to be glorified. So, hey, he was faithful when he foreknew you. He was faithful when he predestined you. He was faithful when he called you. He was faithful when he justified you. What do you think is going to happen when he glorifies you? That's a purely rational argument. It's not even an appeal to emotion or anything like that. It's just here's the the way you ought to think about God. But in addition to that, there are what I mentioned a moment ago, hortatory texts uh, is what they're called. They're, uh, you know, an exhortation is how you can think of that. They are imperatives, but they're they're imperatives in a variety of forms. So the grammatical form is not what I'm talking about. But the point of the text isn't to convince you something's true or false. It's to get you out of your seat and doing something. These are the Richard Simmons texts of Scripture, you know? Get up and do it! You know, you got to get out there. And that's the point. It's to, it, and it's not, it's not 
it's not just an appeal to emotion. Sometimes emotions are wrapped up in these, but the emotions are not the thing. It's the getting up to go do it kind of thing. And that's what, by the way, that's what Paul is doing in that text where he's given us all these reasons about understanding how faithful God is. Then he says, well, then what are we supposed to do with that? And he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also graciously give us all things? And he's saying this to people who are suffering persecution so that by the end of it, they hear him saying, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You can be faithful even when you're losing everything because of what God has done for you in the beginning. You can trust him to take care of you in the end as well. And what he leads to in that that, uh, same flow of argumentation in the longer sense is Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. There's no rationality in this. He's already made all the reasons. Now I appeal to you, brother, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Go do it. And you know the rest of that passage. Those are hortatory texts. Get, you know, get up and do it. Participate in the way you ought to participate. And then beyond that, there are texts that are not appealing to reason and not appealing directly to motivation to go do something, but are purely emotional. That's how the Psalms are written, a lot of them. That's how a lot of the songs that we experience outside the book of Psalms are written, and that's why they're given to us. That's why, you know, when I shared Psalm 65 recently, the the verse, you crown the year with your bounty your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. There's nothing in that where we're supposed to be learning rationally that God causes plants to grow. And if you understand that, that's not the point. And the point isn't, don't forget to go to the temple and offer your sacrifices. Get up, go to the temple, offer your sacrifices. It's not hortatory. It's emotional. Oh, God has so much for the world. It's just pouring out into the mountains and valleys and clothing the sheep and the ground so that you can see this magnificence of God. And it's supposed to leave us in this emotional, awe-filled experience in his presence. That's completely different from exhortation to behavior or clarity of thought. You know, just think reasonably about something. All of those are present in Scripture, and the Scriptures are filled with them, not like one or two acknowledgments of it. There, there, there is a lot of scriptural liter- literature that goes in all of those directions. So in one sense, and that's because scripture speaks to us as human beings. It speaks to our whole soul. So it speaks to all, all of those aspects, mind, will, and emotion. But the other, So in human nature, there's built in this limitation to how important reason can be. It can't be everything. In the same way, reason itself, let's reify it for a second, make it something that exists as a thing in and of itself, reason, rationality. The nature of reason itself precludes it from being the only thing that's important. Because reason, and I've discussed this in other episodes, so I'm not going to go rehash the whole argument right now, but reason cannot motivate us. It's not volitional. It doesn't make you do something. Re, you don't think sit down and say, now, how does a cell work? Oh, yeah, it's got all these, uh, this metabolism that it has to participate in. It's got to put out oxygen. Oh, it needs energy. Hmm, I guess I should go eat. And then you go find something to eat. That's not how we function. We're hungry, therefore we eat. 
we have volition and we have emotions and they they drive us toward things. Reason, and by the way, reason can't satisfy either. Come to the end of an argument, it does it wouldn't make any sense. Reason just isn't emotional. Some intellectuals I know would say, well, actually, I have quite a bit of satisfaction when I come to the end of a problem-solving uh, issue. And what they're, say, what they're trying to say is, reason itself is my satisfaction. But that's a misunderstanding of what they're experiencing because satisfaction, the feeling that things are good now, is not reason. Reason is the tool you were using that led you to an experience where you said, Ah, that feels good. But ah, that feels good isn't rational. So, I mean, we're just that. We just can't be purely rational creatures. It's it's a nonsensical statement because of our nature and because of the nature of reason itself. So I'm going to have to leave that there for the moment. Now I want to get to the point I want to make. That's just the point I wanted to acknowledge. The point I want to make is, but it is critically important and important that all of us, even those of us who are more inclined, and I'm not this, I don't think, I might be. A lot of us are probably more susceptible to this risk than we think. But even for those who don't like reason that much, like they view it as something that's, uh, you know, the guardian at the, or the guardian, the uh, the chaperone at the party that's going to keep you from having the time you ought to have, you know? And so they just, it just ruins everything. Even the people who are like that, uh, we need an acknowledgement of the importance of reason in our lives, and we need to exercise good discipline regarding reason. So let's talk about the importance of reason for a second, for a second, the rest of the time, right? That's the goal here. So, and this, and just continuing from above, this makes the point, because I was saying reason can't motivate us. We get motivated by something else. I'm hungry. And then reason says, well, the best way to get to food is going to be to take some money down to McDonald's and pay for the food. That's a compromised version of the best way to get to food, for sure. But let's just use that for the moment. Or reason can't satisfy because it's not emotional. It doesn't do that. But to continue with the statements, volition will, you remember we're talking about the soul as being mind, will, and emotion, so it's like reason played off against will and emotions here. Volition, the will, doesn't know how to accomplish anything. It just knows what you want to accomplish. I'm going to get in there and fix that. That's why some people can jump into the middle of something and make it worse than it was before. Their will was fine, but they didn't apply reason to find the best solution for the problem. I also know people who use their reason to justify shutting down their will and not getting involved in the things they ought to get to. I'm not saying use one to the exclusion of the other. I'm saying we should acknowledge the importance of reason as it works, for instance, with will, in order for us to get things done in the best way that we can. And also, emotion has no idea how to maintain itself. It's ex emotion basically lives only in the present. Emotional emotion is your 13-year-old teenager, you know? I mean, it's the, it's the, I've got it, but I love him, and I've got it. That's the only person I could ever, and so on. It's, you know, it's immediate and it's very compelling and fulfilling, but it doesn't know how to maintain itself. I mean, that's why, like, let's just take the emotion of anger for a second. A mercurial temper or a seething grudge can end in everyone being worse off. 
being more driven by anger than we were even before or whatever. So let me me put it in context for why I'm bringing this up. And it's uh, partially because of a book I'm reading, and I mean by that listening to, I'm doing an audio book of this one, uh, and it's The Nuremberg Trial by Anne and John Tusa. It's a fantastic history. I'm really enjoying going through it. It was written back a long time ago and then sort of redone in the 1980s, I think, and so it's at least 40 years old in its revised version, I believe. And so, but it's fantastic history of what happened at the Nuremberg Trial, you know, at the end of World War II. So the question that drove the Nuremberg trials that, that into existence, because we hadn't had a tribunal like that before. And so, you know, you get to the end of the war, what, we'd had tribunals. I know you're thinking, oh, no, there have been all kinds of judgments of people who lost wars, but not like the Nuremberg trials, not even remotely. When the war was coming to its end at World War II, the American forces were occupying the, you know, Germany had been divided up into its four parts and everybody had their representation. When the war was nearing its end, you know, we're trying to figure out what, what are we going to do with the war criminals? How do you, how do you respond to, 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 to having these leaders, these Nazi leaders, uh, who you know are guilty of the worst crimes imaginable against humanity? And in a reasonable framework, may be the worst atrocities against humanity ever committed in the history of the world. I know it's arguable because there are some atrocious things that have happened to entire populations throughout the history of the world. Not dismissing those. I'm just saying this goes into the list. It's in. It's a candidate, right? For that to have happened means something needed to be done to make things right. There needed to be some kind of justice, not just, hey, you lost the war, good luck rebuilding your country. It's got to be, you lost the war, you caused so much harm, you've got to pay for it. Somebody's got to, and I don't mean pay for it with money, although that was true too, but you've got to, you know, justice has to be found here somehow. So, you know, every everybody talked about options. You know, one is uh, that you just have summary executions. You find the person, you already know they're guilty, kill them. Uh, take them outside and execute them. You have show trials. Uh, Stalin had been doing show, show trials. I wrote about them in my dissertation years ago. That's the, I don't know, that's a number of decades is in that sound. I don't know how many decades ago. But the point is, the show trials were a thing people do. You just put put the person up there and they say whatever they want to say and you pronounce against them whatever you want to pronounce, but they're already guilty. You know, you're just having the trial so everybody else can understand why you're about to execute them. So you could do show trials or you could do a genuine trial. Now, why on earth would you do a genuine trial? Which would mean, by the way, that there is the possibility of dismissal, that you have to go through the trial knowing that it is possible for the defendant to be found innocent, for something to happen to let them off the hook, that you have to create this whole new mechanism, even a venue for having a trial like this, that you have to define or perhaps discover or perhaps unify around or agree on some set of international laws that already exist or need to exist, that could define criminal acts that have taken place, and you can't sort of do it retroactively, you know? You don't hold people criminally accountable for something that wasn't a crime when they committed it. So really, you need to find laws that they have violated that are worthy of international scrutiny, 
So you got a lot of work you're going to have to do to lay it down. Why do you go through all of that? Why would you do all of that instead of just saying, and this is Herman Gehring. We're not going to let him off the hook. Just take him out back and hang the man. Why don't you do that? Because they really wanted to answer the question for everyone of the quotation that came from Herman Gehring. The question that comes from it, are you really going to do this in a fair way? Or are you just exercising your power because you won the war and you're holding the guns? Because it was Herman Gehring who said, well, the victor will always be the judge and the vanquished, the accused. And he could stand up and he could say that in his uh, uniform and with all the pomposity and authority that he could muster up as this great chancellor of Germany from when Hitler was ruling and, I, you know, you take all of that and you hear a man saying, eh, people are going to look at me badly in history only because you're writing the history, only because you won the war. And that's false. I mean, the crimes that he committed against humanity, against Jews, against gypsies, against Slavs, the things that were perpetuated in the Nazi regime before the war began and during the war, are not just something we don't like, and we happen to win the war, so we write it as if it was a moral atrocity. It was evil, just pure evil. And the people who decided, you know, we need to have a genuine trial, a legitimate opportunity for prosecution and defense and for judges to be impartial and decide what the evidence actually says— partially just to get a reading of the history into a record that's official so that people can know this happened. The people who said that were saying a summary execution is not good enough. A show trial is not good enough. Those accomplish what the will or the emotions want, but they don't accomplish what reason needs and what reason can provide for the rest of us as a result of it. So let me step out of Nuremberg for a minute and and give a, a comparison, an analogy in terms of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is, you know, the theory of how to interpret things. How do you read a text and make sense of it? And I know this sounds, you know, ethereal and a little empty, but it's very important, very meaningful People who say, well, the text just is what it is. I mean, the Bible just says what it says, and this is all there is to it. They're, un, they're not self-aware uh, because as soon as you read something, you are interpreting it, and you're figuring out what you think it means. And there's more to a text than simply the words. Uh, me saying I'm thirsty doesn't mean, hey, I have this condition in my throat, and it's unusual. Me saying I'm thirsty is actually an appeal to your volitional nature. Maybe a little to your emotional, empathetic nature. I'm thirsty. That makes you feel bad for me, right? And you got feet and hands and a faucet. You could go do something about that, right? I mean, could you help me out here? That's what I'm thirsty means. And if, you know, sometimes it means it with authority and sometimes it means it pleadingly. But it always means, would 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 you go do something? which means you had to interpret it. The thing is, we interpret it so quickly and we're so used to language and human interaction that we don't think the interpretation took place. Well, he told me to go get him a drink. No, he didn't. He just said he was thirsty. Well, he actually did. 
because that text has a meaning to it, but it's a meaning that goes beyond the words on the page. So it's so it, there actually is a value to grasping how hermeneutics works, how interpretation works, because when we're reading the Bible, it says more than just the words on the page. When we read those historical narratives, they're not just there so we can have a fact about history that's interesting. They are there for us to learn some lessons. You know, we get some lesson out of it, and that's supposed to change how we feel or how we choose to do things or how we understand the rest of the world and shape it by the things that we've learned from those stories and so on. So it is, and here's the thing. Once you acknowledge that there is an openness to interpret texts, you can fall off a cliff, right? So it is true, this is the part where we kind of go back and forth for a second. On the one side, it's absolutely true that the subjective element in our reading of a passage, our listening to a person speak to us, whatever, that that's always present. What I mean by that is you you are always reshaping what you're hearing so that it fits the way you can understand it. It's just how we are as human beings. Objectivity, the idea that there's something fixed out there that we can trust is just the way it is. You know, it's just a fact. Objectivity is always impinged, limited, cut into in some way by what we want, our volition, and it's always clouded by what we feel. I don't like hearing that, so I'm going to cut that document short. I'm going to cut this statement short. I'm going to change the channel. You know, our unwillingness to listen to certain ideas or to believe certain things. But so, I mean, I could give you examples of how that works in practical terms that there are times when, uh, like when we talked about confirmation bias in the past, you know, it works this way. Volitionally, I want to believe that vaccines work or the vaccines don't work. And so I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go to the Google machine and I'm going to ask the Google machine now, are vaccines healthy? And I don't believe they are. I'm, I, this is not me. I'm, I'm, I'm pro-vaccine. Go get a shot. Be respectful of the people around you. Be respectful of the expertise of people who say that you should go get them. I know some of you don't agree with me. I don't think you're a fool. I just want to give you other ways to think about it too. So anyway, if I'm, if I'm saying to myself, I want to prove that vaccines don't do anything, I'm going to fire up the Google machine. Google, Tell me if vaccines are any good. Well, the first one is the CDC. Go get your vaccine. The next one is the doctors. Oh, go get your vaccine. The next one is the hospital down the street. Please come get your vaccine. The next one is CVS pharmacies. Please come get your vaccines. And then the, the fifth or sixth one is finally a doctor who's sitting in his office with the words, follow the evidence behind him. And he says, now here's the truth about vaccines. And you listen to him and he says, they don't do anything. Don't get it. It's just people trying to make a lot of money. By the way, I'm not a big fan of the pharmaceutical industry trying to make a bunch of money. I'm as critical of that as everybody else. I think it's very similar to the fears that Eisenhower said we should have about the uh, industrial military industrial complex. You know, there's some there's some serious issues going on in the pharmaceutical industry that ought to be considered. Fine, all of that's true. Doesn't change the fact that you went through five or six sources to finally get to one you agreed with and said, "See, see, I was right," because volition impinges the things that we read or hear so that we hear them differently. Now, that one is just skipping through a bunch of texts to get to one that you like. But what I mean is when we're reading anything, we sort of change it so it fits the way we want to hear it. 
when we're do when we read the Bible, we do that all the time. We bring a question to the Bible, we find a verse that says what we want it to say, and then we say, "Oh, that's my text. I can prove that what I was thinking was true because that's what Jesus said. Jesus said uh, that you ought to do this or that, and here are the words where He said it. But it has nothing to do with what you're really talking about. We do that all the time. And by the way, the fact that the subjective element is always there. The fact that, so this is how we started this. The subjective element's always present when we're reading something, when we're determining what it means. So the emotional and volitional part of us is always there and saying, I want it to be this. Ooh, that feels good. I like that. That's always there. But that presence, the fact that that's always there, doesn't necessarily create a hegemony. They're not the only things that are there. There's also something objective present. So when you're talking about interpreting texts in the discipline of hermeneutics, there's one approach that, like I said, jumps off the cliff that robs texts of any objective meaning. You know, we make them say whatever we want. I, and I hear believers say this all the time. Oh, let's have a discussion about this doctrine. Well, you know, let's not, let's not just open the Bible and say we're going we're gonna to argue it this way or that way because you can make it say whatever you want and I can make it say whatever I want. What we're actually embracing by saying that is, well, the text doesn't have any meaning. We just make it say whatever we want it to say. Now, it's true that we can be abusive in our argumentation, sort of squelch ideas that we ought to hear. But here's the thing. In this way of reading in, in hermeneutics, the idea that robs the text of any objective meaning, we make those texts say whatever we want them to mean, That in that case, the meaning would be entirely in the reader, entirely subjective. And you can understand why people say that, because if you've spent any time watching people from different backgrounds argue about a news article or a chapter in a book or something, then you know this claim that reading can be entirely subjective is not entirely without merit. Two people can read exactly the same thing and think the author has said the opposite of each other's interpretation of it. That's true. But despite any amount of interpretive latitude that we exercise in circumstances like that, there's still this fixed object we have to work around, which is the text itself. It'll have instructions. It'll have facts. It'll have names. It'll have whatever's. And you may be able to, in an analogy you of this analogy, you may be able to choose 21 different roads around or over or through that mountain, but the mountain is still there. And that's what in a text is always still going to be present. You still got to deal with those words. You still got to deal with that grammar, that syntax, with that context, with whatever's going on it, with that genre. And that is, by its definition, inherently an object. It's an objective bit of content that you have to deal with. And there's, I think there's more to it than that, but at a minimum, there's always that present. And so I, I want to come back to Nuremberg to make this point. That's what made Nuremberg so important. They weren't satisfied with the emotional retribution of mob lynchings. That wasn't going to be good enough. It wasn't just that these people needed to die. That'll make us feel better. It'll be vindication for some of the suffering that they caused in the world. Never enough. Those who organized the Nuremberg trials and came to the conclusion that the Nuremberg trial needed to happen, they weren't satisfied with the resolve of summary executions. 
which is just saying, look, it's our will that these people should be judged. So let's get it done. Let's get our feet to the task and get them hung or shot or in some way executed. And, and, and then it's done and we can just move on. They weren't satisfied with that. They chose the frustratingly delayed, and I mean, it took a couple of years. We're talking the end of 1946 before there was a verdict. That's a year and a half after the war is over. They chose that, the frustratingly delayed, calm, dispassionate environment of a courtroom, attorneys, a tribunal, evidence, witnesses, documents, certificates of verification, because they wanted the potential for real change, not just in that day, but for future generations. And they wanted a record of what had actually happened, not just that someone had defeated this foe, but that evil had happened and that something had stopped it and that someone had acknowledged what had actually transpired. There there are issues going on right now that make this relevant for us and make it important. There are current issues that are just perfect illustrations of how important it is that we acknowledge the value of clear, objective, rational responses to evil. Imagine saying, and as I'm speaking these words, the Natalie Holloway stuff has just transpired. Imagine saying, to Natalie Holloway's family, that the only reason Joran Vandersloot is being held accountable for the incomprehensible evil he has caused their family and others is that they're American. They have legal power and they have wealth on their side. Imagine saying that. If you don't know the story, you can look it up and, and for, uh, for yourself. No, I mean, Joran Vandersloot is evil. He did evil. Does that mean I believe God can't redeem him or any of that? No, but this is evil. What he did to, now we know at least two women killing them and then trying to use some of that to extort money from their families is evil. And you have to be able to pronounce that. If you can't, if you say, oh, well, I mean, you're you're getting to write history only because you caught me. You know, the only reason you're saying I'm evil is because you didn't do it and you don't like people who do it and you just happen to have the power. No, there's a difference between people who don't kill innocent people and people who do. There's a rationally observable, objectively important distinction between those two kinds of people. Or imagine thinking that the atrocities committed against millions of Jews and gypsies and Slavs and French citizens, not to mitigate the fact that it was principally and first motivated against the Jews, but, and, but also atrocities against all kinds of other Europeans just by the invasions and occupations of their lands, the decimation of their families and their livelihoods and everything. Imagine thinking that those atrocities are considered evil only because the nationalists of Germany failed to purge the world of those inferior people. If they'd succeeded, we'd look back and say that was a good thing. Suppose they had succeeded, and suppose we did look back and say, well, thank heavens we got rid of all that uh, impure blood. You know, that would make us evil. 
It wouldn't make us have a different rationality. It would make us evil. And when we look at what's happened with Hamas and their terrorist attacks in Israel and the brutality that has brought down on Israelis and Palestinians who are suffering because of what they did, if we don't allow ourselves to have objective, rational clarity about how we speak to those issues, we will be seen as prejudiced only by our Western worldview or prejudiced only by our preference for democracy. Now, there's no rational sense in which anyone should look at the terrorist act of Hamas and back up and say, well, you know, it's understandable. Let me explain. Let me explain why this works. I can give all kinds of explanations for why it happened. I can give all kinds of explanations for psychologically how a person could move from being an empathetic human being to someone who can slaughter grandparents and babies. I can describe it, but I can also rationally explain why it is pure evil and completely unjustifiable. Those are two different issues. So I'm making the point that we can't afford to abandon the value of objective reason in a world where people are willing to say when they're living on will and emotion, well, it's just whoever wins, that's who's right. No, 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 it's not. There's real content to it. And I could spend another 30 minutes talking about how the fact that God made Israel a people of the book, that even in a book that appeals to all three aspects, he wrote it down in words, in black and white, so people could see it. And it would stay the same from one generation to the next, is an appeal to say, of course, we have to acknowledge and live in the beauty and value of our will and our emotions. But we also have to have this very present, very real, rational control of what's going on. And I don't mean by control, total control of all things. I don't mean that. Our emotions and volition have huge sway in what we do, and in some ways are the controlling factors. But reason has to give it a direction, has to give it, has to inform it. So about volition and emotion, You know, those who think they live entirely rational lives, they just lack self-awareness, or they live in denial, or both. And to live fully is, this is just about volition and emotion, it is to experience emotion. If you don't, you're missing out. And I, I mean it even biblically. The statements in James, let your laughter be turned to mourning. For Jesus to say, I've come so that you can have joy, and that your joy might be full. For Paul to say, in the peace of God that passes understanding, that exceeds what you could explain, will guard your hearts. That's the volition and mind reasoning. You have to live with emotion or you're living an empty life. To, and, and, and to accomplish anything, remember we're talking about volition and emotion right now, to accomplish anything is to apply the volition. It's to apply the will. It's not, you, know, you can't simply be a boat adrift in a stream, to use some Henry James language, waiting for some current to carry us somewhere. We can't do that. We have to put an oar in the water and head one direction or the other. 
The other option is simply to abdicate the very nature of what God created us to be in the world, which is creators of action, not just objects of motion. I mentioned earlier, that's why it's so important for us when we're talking about Scripture to acknowledge all three of the types of literature that are in Scripture and to communicate those effectively to the people we're trying to disciple or help grow in their faith. But about reason, that was about will and emotion, but about reason, let me just say this and I'll be done. To live in emotion or with volition, but to reject the clear and difficult instructions of reason. Well, you know, where that leaves us is this. There's a, when I was a kid playing sports, I heard this a lot, but I know a lot of other people heard it a lot also. And that's when the coach says to the player, son, get your head in the game. <laughs> you know, that get your head in the game means you're too emotional right now or, you know, you're doing a bunch of stuff but it's not helping. Get your intellect back in the game. And we have to do that too. In our, con- in our context right now, there are conspiracies galore. And as an example, they're inevitably based on a rejection of sources and claims that we think are somehow incompatible with what we want to believe or with what satisfies our emotions. And that makes us susceptible to all kinds of deception and weakness. And we see a lot of that in our lives right now. So in that environment, we have an obligation to regain the footing we can only maintain if we have a respect for the limited but vital place of reason. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.